Atamaria, welcome to First Up. It's Rahina, Monday the 18th of July. Corn at Coming up, America's thirst for oil saw US President Joe Biden bump fists with Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Salman over the weekend. The quarrying industry says our biggest city faces a shortage of building aggregate. Will it be Jib Mark II? Liana Scott joins us from the Cook Islands after the coast was swamped by the biggest seas locals have ever seen. And an expert expert tells us why the new variant of COVID means we could be in for a rough ride. We've been vaccinated and we've been infected with previous versions of the COVID-19 virus. The one that is circulating now has changed so much that that immunity doesn't work quite so well. Welcome to First Up, I'm Nick Trubridge. Uh, US President Joe Biden has just wrapped up a tour of Israel, the occupied West Bank, and Saudi Arabia. It's his first ever visit to the region in his capacity as president. Uh, and joining me now from Doha is our correspondent Alex Baird. Morena, Alex. Kia ora. Hey look, let's just get a bit of an overview of this trip first of all to give a bit of context. Uh, what's President Joe Biden been up to? So basically, in his fir- for the first time in his capacity as president, Joe Biden has come to the Middle East on a whirlwind tour of Israel, the occupied West Bank, and Saudi Arabia. It's important because Trump had been doing a bit of a step back from the international diplomacy, and this was kind of seen as Joe Biden putting America's foot back into the diplomatic saddle and really making sure that America is center front of stage when it comes to all things global, including the Middle East. The Khashoggi uh, affair has obviously sort of loomed large over all of this. Uh, for those who don't know, this this journalist who was, um, well, killed for, uh, well, the reason, the jury's still out on the reasons. But um, was this a point of discussion or was it sort of pushed aside for these broader issues around um, oil, for example? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. So... Just to give a bit of background, so Jamal Khashoggi is a U. It was rather a U.S. Saudi dual national. He he was a journalist. He he wrote for a number of publications in the Middle East and in the West. And basically, uh, um, I think it was in 2018, he went to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, and he was never heard from again. Reportedly, he was chopped up literally into pieces and dissolved in a vat of acid, and it went down really, really badly, as you would hope in the United States. And when Biden was running for president, he said that there was no way he was going to talk to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia after this all, hap- all happened because uh, US intelligence had said that this had come, this, this order to kill Khashoggi had come from up top. So he said, I'm going to make Saudi Arabia make sure they're a pariah state. I'm not going to talk to the crown prince. And indeed, at the beginning of his presidency, he did stick to those guns. But then what came into play? Oil. Uh, <laughs> And oil, as we know, changes the whole game, especially in this part of the world. And so Biden made a point, you know, um, that he was still going to bring this up. But he arrived in Saudi Arabia. He fist bumped the crown prince who was at the center of all of this. And that went badly down back in the United States and with a lot of people around the world. And to his credit, he did bring up the murder of Khashoggi. He brought it up with the crown prince, crown prince. It didn't float very well with him, to be honest. And he made his thoughts very clear that he said it wasn't from him, with some rogue Saudi agents. But I think from President Biden's point of view, he he made it clear that he wasn't okay with the murder, murder of Khashoggi. But sadly, I think what you've seen here is that the conversation very quickly moved on to oil. 
And um, we haven't had any confirmation yet as to whether that conversation came to anything. Um, but both sides have said it was constructive. So I think what you're going to end up seeing here, I would say fairly likely, is that Saudi is going to pump out a bit more oil to make things a le- little less hot back home in the United States. So this this issue of Khashoggi was sort of, would it be fair to say brushed over? I would say that, I mean, if we look at the original stance that Biden took, it was very mm. strong point that he wouldn't even talk yeah. to the guy. And, you know, as I said, the moment oil came to the equation, he was willing to smooth things over, to normalise relations, to still bring it up to make sure that he wasn't kind of going back too much on his original position. But he's moved forward enough that it does look a bit like he's brushing it under the rug in, in the favour of the economy. Yeah. Hey, um, fallout elsewhere, uh, there was a, there was some action sort of less than 24 hours after he left Israel, wasn't there? Rockets fired from Gaza into Israel. It doesn't sound like the uh, the Palestinians are, are, are overjoyed. No, so just to give you a bit of an example, uh, Biden spent around a day in, in Israel, if not a bit more, and he spent around an hour, if not a little bit more to his credit, um, but basically around an hour in the occupied West Bank. Um, he, while he was in Israel, he said things like, you know, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist and I'm a Zionist. And if, as you can imagine, that went down pretty poorly in, in the occupied West Bank and in Gaza City. And about an hour or so after he left, there was a barrage of rockets fired from Gaza City into Israel. But as these things usually go, the barrage that was sent back from Israel was even harsher. And Israel says they were targeting Hamas sites. Hamas is the group that runs Gaza City. Um, but Hamas said, you know, we don't know who fired these rockets into Gaza City. And I think it's completely plausible. But they said this is just another example of what Israel is willing to do when it has the backing of the US, that it's willing to, to bomb to high heavens Gaza City. In 2021, um, more than 100 people were killed in these bombings of Israel. Now, there are rockets going both ways, but it's, it's never equal in that part of the world. Yeah, international relations at its toughest for sure. Uh, Hey, uh, thanks, Alex. Alex Beard there from Doha. Right, it is just coming up uh, 5.12. You're with First Up on RNZ National. I'm Nick Trubridge and for Nathan Rariri. We're keen for your feedback. uh, And, well, it's the only thing anyone's uh, talking about, really, isn't it? Is the time, is time up? For All Black coach Ian Foster, should he stay, should he go, is it razor time? Tell us what you think. You can text us uh, on 2101. You can tweet us at firstuprnz or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at firstuprnz. Uh, right, a vet practice in rural Queensland is bucking the trend on staff shortages, attracting young veterinarians who want to work in a supportive environment. The often tough industry is known for its high suicide rates. But these women say change is possible with adequate, adequate support. The ABC's Erin Semler reports. No two days are the same in the life of a rural vet. But after 17 years, Tess Salmond is no stranger to burnout. One vet in Australia commits suicide every 12 weeks, so it's real. You can't deny the statistics, and we all know people that have succumbed, and, and they're the ones that you know have got to the very end of that journey. A lot of us get a bit way along and, and get some help, luckily. Suicide rates in the industry are up to four times higher than the general population, according to the Australian Veterinary Association. A national vet shortage is adding to the burden. 
I think communities getting behind and you know supporting the rural vet clinics that are there really helps um, because then we can have enough vets. Dr Salmond is one of seven vets in Clomont, a central Queensland town of less than 3,000 people. The clinic services cattle, horses and small animals across a 1,000 kilometre area. We can go from, I'll be out preg testing in the morning and then come back and I know one day I've come back and had to do a caesarean on a dog. An experienced vet doesn't just appear magically, we have to invest in the, in the young ones. Monica Chinchilla left New South Wales to pursue her career in the town. It can be quite an emotionally draining profession, um, just with people and their expectations and sometimes delivering bad news can be quite upsetting, but um, then you have really good days as well. While this clinic is thriving, early career vets say more could be done to attract young people to the profession. Some type of subsidies, such as what they have um, in doctors and nursing and teachers, I think that they can subsidise their HEX, uh, which would, I think, potentially help retain vets out in regional areas. Despite the industry's challenges, Dr Salmond is confident in her young vets. They make me so proud every day. They just get in and have a go. And I think the future for rural veterinary practice is very bright indeed. Sri Lanka's parliament will gather to vote for a new president this week after Gotabaya Rajapaska's resignation. The vote comes less than a week after the resignation in the wake of a tumultuous few months during which the country's suffered crippling economic and social woes. So I asked our correspondent Kaswar Klasra when the vote is being held. Well, following the resignation of you know the president of Sri Lanka, the parliament of Sri Lanka has finalised plan to hold another election. And this time, the parliament, the member of parliament will be going to elect the new president. This is going to be held first time in uh, the history of uh, Sri Lanka that the parliament has been forced to select or elect the president twice because, you know, the former uh, uh, president, uh, he fled from Sri Lanka to Thailand and then Thailand to Singapore. And in an unprecedented way, his final destination, that is Singapore, he sent his resignation letter to uh, the Speaker of uh, Sri Lankan Parliament. It never happened in Sri Lanka before, so it was unprecedented. So the thing is, the Parliament is going to elect the President uh, on uh, Wednesday, July 20, 2022, and this will be first time in history of Sri Lanka that the same Parliament will elect the President twice in a, in a uh, in, in, in first term. So it is all unprecedented. But the thing is, despite the change of, uh, despite the election of uh, the new president, uh, the country may have the new president, but the inflation is there. The country is running very low on fuel and other food items as well. So things are really uh, not good on the ground in Sri Lanka as well. Let's move to India, which is set to overtake China in terms of population next year, isn't it, according to the UN? Well, you have rightly pointed out, India is set to become the world's most populous country next year, overtaking China with its 1.4 billion population. And the figure has just come from the United Nations. And by November, the, you know, the planet is going to house the 8 billion people. 
but the, uh, what is hurting the government and also the people of india is that despite becoming the world's largest populous country on planet earth it is already stretching its uh, resources and this is what that is haunting the people and the government of india as well and they are already you know underdeveloped and uh, becoming the world's largest and populous uh, you know the country may give them another credit but uh, the things are really uh, not well on the ground and this is what haunted the government of you know the india as well uh, and to Pakistan, Kaswar, the president of Pakistan is urging Americans of Pakistani descent to help strengthen ties between the two nations. Yeah, this is this is very interesting. And as you remember, the uh, former prime minister of Pakistan accused, uh, you know, the Biden administration of uh, conspiring against his regime, and he he made it loud and clear, even in the public rallies, that Americans were blamed to change his regime. And um, uh, he probably Imran Khan publicly uh, accused Biden ad- administration to conspire with some opposition parties and change regime in Pakistan. But now he's one of his best friends, who is still the president of Pakistan and also belongs to his party as well. He has reached out to the Americans of Pakistani descent to support country regime and mend the ties between United States and Pakistan. This is really very interesting that Imran Khan has uh, alleged Biden administration of conspiracy against his regime. But his friend, who is also from his party, is uh, going to you know, reach out to the Pakistanis of uh, uh, American Pakistanis, uh, requesting him to play their role in mending the ties with, with the US and Pakistan. So this is... Really, very interesting. I think Imran Khan's uh, ta- earliest stars has been compromised. Kaswar Klasra there, our correspondent in beautiful Pakistan. It is just coming up to 5.20am in the morning. I'm Nick Truebridge and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, we'll cross to our friend Liana Scott in the Cook Islands after the coast there was swamped by the biggest seas locals have ever seen. We speak to an expert who says that as as the construction industry gets busier, plasterboard won't be the only building material we should be worried about. And All Blacks management, well, yeah, they're under intense scrutiny. Um, After that historic series lost to Ireland on Saturday, we'll ask our rugby expert Barry guy whether uh, with well whether soul searching will be enough or whether there needs to be more where the head should roll where they are standing in the rare big ones small ones some big as to the fresh produce markets we hit in Rotorua this morning is our minister of fruit and veggies Glenn Forsyth Morena Glenn Running, I'm running it. How are you, buddy? Good, good, good. Um, hey, look, have you planned this? I've got potatoes on the agenda in front of me. Uh, two days after the Irish demolished us in Wellington, uh, the humble potato, it's about as Irish as you can get, and uh, you have planned this. You've been speaking to a guy named Colin Murphy. What have you been up to? Um, how's that, right? Staying with the, the mighty Irish this morning, yeah. they too up there grow great veggies, and in particular strong root crops like ourselves. Popular are cabbage, carrots, broccoli, swedes, cauliflower and parsnips, but it is the potato we want to chat about. Ball Brothers, based in Pukekohe, but farms from Kaitaia all the way through to, to Canterbury, would you believe, enabling them to feed us many vegetables through the different seasons of the year. Very smart and 
a heck of a top family, the Ball Brothers. Colin Murphy, a.k.a. Chalky, their sales manager, tells us more. So since the first lockdown in 2020, potatoes have sold well. Currently, they, they do lucky sods prepacks through Countdown, which are mostly a washed agria at the moment. Also, they do a white washed nardine or highlanders. They're, they're good boilers and salads or in casseroles and soups. The Moonlight variety they also do, that's an all-rounder. Chipping, wedges and mash, um, found in some HelloFresh boxes. But Chalky's favourites in winter, 40 years in the industry he's been, Moonlight and Agria he likes. He'll never forget the, the horror on his dad's face when he mashed some Agria for him for the first time and it was yellow in colour instead of the traditional white. But one of the most magic ways to enjoy Agria, he adds, is roasted or is jacket potatoes with, with fillings of your choice, you know, even baked beans and that so you can you can be quite creative. What's your go-to? Because the, the agria is hard to beat, isn't it? Oh, it is. It, it's certainly hard to beat. The moonlight's okay, but, you, you know, and, and the nardines are right for if you want to do some dishes with that. But, mm. no, I'm with, I'm with you, Nick, the agria. Hey, um, you've also been getting some veggie tips from the the industry website, which of course is vegetables.co.nz. Um, what what do they reckon? Oh, mate, they're awesome. Uh, vegetables this morning a little bit sparse um, at the markets today, but what we saw most of were yams, butternuts, the snack size better bites, carrots, pumpkin, onions, and mushrooms. So still some choices there. Another great supporter for our industry and website is what you've just mentioned, vegetables.co.nz. If you do have a chance, check it out and subscribe to their newsletters. The information on there for untold vegetables is outstanding. Tips such as what to look for, availability, how to prepare, ways to eat, nutrition, you know, literally everything. For example, I mean, have you tried roasting broccoli, cauliflower, yams and parsnips? They roast well with a dash of olive oil, sprinkle of cumin or other herbs and spices. Make a meal out of roast vegetables, they say, with sliced meat and cheese, a yogurt dressing and a uh, sprinkle of nuts or seeds. And then they talk about silver beet, spinach and leeks. They're great in pies. You can even use silver beet in place of phyllo pastry. You know, blanch large leaves and fill with a prepared stuffing like shredded cooked chicken or canned tuna. And, you know, mix that with herbs in an egg. Roll that up and bake, bake with a little grated cheese on top. So, yeah, great website. Leeks are underrated, aren't they? I, I, they're so good. I had chicken pie last night. It had leeks in it. They are so good. Yes, yes. Gives you ga- it gives you a bit spiked. of gas, but apart from that, they're good. <laughs> That's right. And the prices of those haven't, haven't spiked this winter yet either. Hey, um, it's, it's kind of hard. We've got 20 seconds here, so very brief. Fruit this time of year. What are you going for? Because it's a funny time for fruit. Oh, okay, let's rattle through it. was looking at some fruit promotions this morning that two banner groups are doing this week, and it totaled five. Shows how hard it is doing specials right in the middle of winter. The, those five items were apples, lots of apples, pack and pears, new season avocados, navel oranges, and the best value for money by the mm. looks of things, green kiwi fruit. Green kiwis are high in vitamin C and dietary fibre and, and provide a variety of health benefits. Mm. This tart fruit can support heart health, digestive health, and immunity. Kiwi fruit is a healthy choice of fruit and is rich with vitamins and antioxidants. Now, something we remember Dad doing was his uncooked kiwi fruit jam. He would wash and then slice green kiwi fruit into a dozen slices each, skin included, sprinkled Ooh. lightly with sugar, and kept in a saucer in the fridge overnight. Then he would put those on hot buttered toast in the morning for you know for some pure zest for the day nice. and kickstart his vitamin C intake bright and early. Delicious. Hey, thanks, Glenn. Have a good day. You too. Roll a pole, a pole, a penny a pin. Yes, business. Yes, business.
that's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. Right, joining us now from our business team is Giles Beckford. Morning, Giles. Morning to you. Hey, uh, what's the team focusing on this morning? Run us through it. Well, uh, we're going to have a look at the uh, inflation numbers that will be coming out later this morning. Uh, sort of a little duck and dive and a sift through those. Uh, expectations are for 1.5% rise in the consumer price index for the three months end of June. That will take the annual rate to 7.1%. That'll be the highest since June 1990. Whole generations of people have been born since we've seen figures of this sort. Uh, no surprise what's driving it, which is fuel. Fuel is up around 60% so far this year. It's all imported. No choice but to take the pain at the pump uh, and in the numbers. Some food, uh, building costs. Of course, we all hear about those and the various shortages of goods. Uh, and, of course, it will reflect also the rise in wages uh, and uh, just the cost of running a house, um, power, rents, uh, rates, all those sorts of things. So they'll be the main drivers on it. Uh, the, the, there's some debate as to whether this will be the peak of it, the peak of inflation, and it'll, uh, it'll start to ebb away from here on in. Um, and the argument, of course, or should we say the debate rather than the argument, because economists don't argue, no. uh, is essentially... Um, how long it stays around these levels. If it takes a while to ease and fall away, we're still going to be fall, uh, feeling the pain of it. And the response, of course, part of that pain is higher interest rates because the Reserve mm-hmm. Bank is out there with its uh, double-barreled polished shotgun of interest rates um, hunting down the economic enemy number one. Yeah, that's right. I, um, I've got a note here about... Uh Rich people wanting to come to New Zealand. What's that about? Oh, there are firms overseas <laughs> which just specialise in looking for tidy, comfortable little bolt holes that people with a lot of money can come and visit. And they do. Wait for the end of the world. Yeah, wait for the end of the world. Well, in this case, um, it's a firm called Henley Partners, uh, based in London. Right. They've done their uh, their latest uh, look at the demand. New Zealand and Australia expected to continue their run as major wealth hub magnets. Just consider that. We're looking for new export jobs. So major wealth hub magnets, 10-year growth rates of 70% uh, for those countries. In other words, these are the number of inquiries. Now, this firm, Henley & Partners, they say that they have processed uh, as many inquiries from high net worth individuals, in other words, extremely well-off people, uh, to come to New Zealand, they've processed as many in the first three months of the year as they did in the whole of 2021. So there you have it. Uh, we not, should, yeah. Notwithstanding all the arguments that we hear about uh, skills shortages, uh, it would yeah. appear that um, you can never have too many high net worth individuals. We should we should make it you know they can come but they have to work in uh, they have to work as a nurse for a little for a little period there. At the I'm start. not sure. Look, they may have a lot of money. I'm not sure I'd necessarily. Peter Teal, Peter Teal on the on the ED ward in Palmerston North, maybe. Would you trust your life in his hands? <laughs> Why not? I'll leave, I'll leave you with that question. <laughs> you know, hey, I, uh, mean, I mean, and, and this is just the you know the I mean, we have visa categories which allow rich people to come in here. Yeah, sometimes they get in here far totally. more easily than um, people that we really need.
Hey, thanks, Charles. Uh, you can hear more from our business team on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Uh, right, we are going to uh, the Cook Islands now, where a large cleanup operation is underway on several Pacific islands after huge ocean swells caused widespread flooding, damaging homes and hotels over the weekend. A state of emergency was declared in American Samoa after waves swamped homes, a church, a school, and key infrastructure. Uh, French Polynesia, well, that was battered by eight to nine metre swells, eight to nine metres, with roads and houses submerged in Tahiti. In the Cook Islands, as I said, some locals say they've never seen such huge waves before. One of them was Liana Scott, who's president president of Cook Islands Tourism Industry Council and the and the manager rather of Muri Beach Club Hotel in Rarotonga. Morena Liana. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, look, how bad was this? Was it uh, was it pretty scary? Ah, uh, it was. It, it was not <laughs> like we get uh, king tides. Um, Often, and when I yep. say often, once every two years or so. Hmm. But and we kind of have a line in our minds of where it ends, and it certainly passed that line. So it was sort of the waves or the height of waves that you'd expect during a cyclone, and it was really, really unusual for these uh, tides or the swell to get as far as it did. So it was, yeah, it was, it was really un- unexpected. Um, and of course, depending on where you were on the southern side of the island, um, it sort of uh, distinguished what sort of damage you were going to receive. Yeah, talk to us about damage. Um, you're at Muddy Beach Club, obviously. Mm, what, what, mm-hmm. Was there any there? Was there any other spots around Rarotonga? Look, there was, um, you either got the sand dump or the sand removal. So it was either heavy erosion or a lot of extra surplus sand and other things that sort of were floating in the lagoon. But um, we're we're quite lucky. We're across from an offshore island called Amotu uh, that protects a lot of the uh, the foreshore for us. But certainly there were other sides of the um, more eastern side of the island that had uh, water um, goes through rooms, sand dumping, removal of large boulders to the other side of the road. So it was quite surreal, actually. Water through some rooms, did you say? Yeah, so uh, one of the bigger hotels on the islands uh, did experience um, a- approximately a million dollars worth of damage is the figure that they've um, that they've given government. The survey went out quite quickly just to ascertain what sort of uh, damage uh, properties occurred, or, or um, and it was everything from kayak removal or some some furniture around the beach side or some decking being destroyed um, to some actual room damage and you can imagine, you know, this is quite a blow for tourism properties that have just just coming into the middle of high season. In fact, it was quite um, quite difficult reassigning rooms for those guests, given the island is so full at, the, at present, um, but certainly a blow for those that are coming out of two years of very little business uh, through COVID. Absolutely. Um, this This particular accommodation spot a million dollars worth of damage that's that's mm. unbelievable um so what happens to the uh, do they have they now lost their guests as well or do they make alternative arrangements what's happened in their case yeah so they have posted on social media that um they've got some alternative arrangements because they've got another property in Aitutaki so that could be one 
option as an as an example. Uh, they've uh, been flexible with their cancellation policy. So if there's guests coming in the next week or so, they may want to defer or make uh, rearrangements. And I understand that they are being flexible with in doing so, whether they're on a non-refundable or refundable. So there has been some flexibility. Of course, there's other properties on the island that have been assisting with um, some of those offloaded guests if need be. But I think they're, they're wanting to really operate as quickly as possible. And it's not all rooms. So it would be, I would say, in terms of percentage of rooms, uh, probably about 15% of the rooms that are affected. Uh, they are operating their food and beverage again. Uh, they've just rearranged where the seating arrangements would be, as an example. But they're certainly trying to get back to business as normal, particularly as we are in our peak season at present. Hey, look, um, stay safe, Liana, and all the best, and all the best to your colleagues over there as well. Uh, Liana Scott there, Cook Islands Tourism Industry Association uh, and Moody Beach Club Hotel. Right, joining me now from the RNZ Sport Desk is Barry Guy. Morning, Morena. Barry. Yeah. Hey, where's, look, um, where's Nathan? Is he in mourning or something? Is he? Uh, well, quite yeah. actually, quite positive. They they didn't tell me why he was off today, but you make a good point. Yeah. Hey, um, I've, let, let's go to some texts first because that was our feedback question this morning. What should happen to Foster? I've got two here. Uh, let him do South Africa tests first. If he doesn't win any of those, then he goes. Uh, another one here, Foster and the entire t- coaching team must go now. Him staying on any longer uh, will devalue the all-black brand. Where are you at on this, Barry? Uh, it's it's kind of that balance, isn't it? Because do you let him stay for the rugby championship? If that's a failure, well, there's a really short lead-up for whoever comes into the World Cup. Uh, who... Who's the replacement? If it's uh, Scott Robertson from uh, Canterbury, he he um, he doesn't have experience at this level, so and there is no one else around really. So it's only him. So is it Foster or Scott Robertson? Now I'm sure mm. what happens quite often is when a, a new manager or coach comes in, there is that uh, what do they call it the that sort of peak afterwards where everything goes well for a few games. The honeymoon and then, period. Yeah, 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 honeymoon period. And then, then things settle down. So to tell you the truth, I've, I'm, um, I've not really uh, uh, thought about that. Um, I think that uh, Foster should stay on for a while. I can't see the rugby union uh, kicking someone out mid-season. And I can't see the rugby union kicking someone out um, if it's at the end of the year, six months, six months before the World mm. Cup. That would be quite drastic. Uh, so uh, really, um, I think uh, this uh, regime probably has to carry on. It may need some help somewhere in some certain areas because, to me, losing to Ireland is not... The end of the world. It's not, not disastrous. Ireland's yeah, challenging to be the number one side in the world now. This is professional rugby. There are six yeah. teams in the world that can beat anyone else on any it's, given Sunday, it's, so it's, to speak. It's a it's an interesting discussion, isn't it? Because a lot of the dialogue has been, well, Ireland are a great team. We shouldn't hold our heads in shame. But 
I watched that game at the weekend, and it's the way you yes. lose a game, isn't yeah, it? The I mean, the way and the, yeah. and the way you start the game, where you don't, you're not just losing, you're not close, frankly. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those ones where the All Blacks, for a number of years now, have had problems. Um, you know, the opposition always starts very strongly, and the All Blacks have relied on coming from behind quite often to win, and they've normally done it. I mm. think perhaps what the problem was in Dunedin in the second test, it was the ill-discipline in the cards. You know, you, you can't win when you only got 13 players on the mm. field and those sorts of things. And I think in Wellington, there, there, there's just a lot of basic errors, handling and those sorts of things and a little bit of ill-discipline and, you know... Um, I think they just need to go back to play some basic rugby for a while, make sure you get all your line-out ball, solid scrum, kicking the ball. I think uh, for many years the All Blacks were the leaders in the way that you defended and also attacked. Mm. Uh, But again, you know, with television, everyone sees what's happening now and that's nullified. And I think the All Blacks still feel that that's the way they've got to win games, not the English way where you rumble away, hold on, hold on, and kick some goals and win. That's never been the All Blacks' way. But, in a, in a, you know, Johnny Sexton kicked a whole lot of goals. That's the way that rugby is going now. Yeah. I hate it personally, but that's that's the way it is. So I think the All Blacks just need to go back to play some solid rugby, you know, with little mistakes, and then sort of uh, build from there and, you know, yeah. Have the have the, have the you know the the side that you can be happy with because I think that's the biggest thing from um, from Saturday night here it was perhaps that they not that they didn't lose but just the manner in which they lost because they weren't playing just you know basic solid um, rugby and so you know so you, you so yeah so so you say with all of your rugby knowledge <laughs> you you gotta you gotta keep them at this stage it's kind of yeah I do okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. um, also just want to, um, we're running out of time, quickly point yep. out that I was in Cardiff the day after the All Blacks lost that quarterfinal against France, yeah, and we yeah. thought that the world was going to end. As it turned out, things evolved, you know, and uh, we were all honky-dory there for a while, and, you know, and we won the next World Cup and that sort of thing. We won the next two, yeah. Yeah, so this 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 is uh, um, a setback, you know, um, me personally, um, but um, as I say... I think we all need to realise that um, it's getting closer in world rugby of the top six teams, mm. and this is Which this is, a is good the thing. way it's going to be. Which is a good thing. Yeah. 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 Hey, sorry, thanks, sorry about that, everyone. I don't have all the answers, um, but you know, we'll see. Three weeks' time, the rugby championship starts. Cheers, Barry. Yeah. More on sport in morning report coming up. Uh, right, where are we? That's where we are. Uh, we're 16 to 6. Uh, sorry, Monday morning blues. Uh, Nick Trubridge, you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, the quarrying industry is warning of a shortage of aggregate for the building uh, for building in our biggest city. Uh, well, is it going to be Jib Mark too? We know all about Jib. Uh, and we speak to an immunologist who says, just because you've already had COVID and are vaccinated, well, it doesn't mean you can rest easy, unfortunately. <laughs> Right, the professionals of Morning Report are up after six, and for a quick preview of our flagship news programme is Corinne Dan. Corinne will get to the preview soon, but is it razor time? 
Could be. Uh, I think I heard you talk to Barry. The one thing I would add to that, there is clearly a disconnect. There is te- clearly something going wrong between what the coaches are wanting and what the players are doing. Yeah. We need to find out whether or not the players are happy. They Are Are they unhappy with the coaching? That is important. Uh, there's this weird situation of the rugby union putting out a statement yeah. saying that it's unacceptable. I mean, what? What? And they're going to do uh, That seems weird to me. Never seen that. Uh, yeah. uh, something's going on. And we need to know what it is. That's what's worrying people, or rugby fans, is it just feels like there's something not right. And until we get that sorted, we can cope with the loss. But it does feel like something's wrong deeper. Uh, we're going to talk to Ant Strawn, Bryn Hall, uh, Scotty Stevenson. Uh, we'll go to Ireland as well. So we're going to have plenty of rugby. So for those fans who don't like the rugby, well, you know, it's. I'm sorry about that, but this is a, it's, this is a crisis. <laughs> we, can call it, we can use the C word when it comes to rugby. Uh, but we won't, of course, ignore the other very important stories around this morning. Uh, inflation. Uh, we'll talk to uh, Michael Wood uh, regarding the transport initiatives that were announced yesterday. That was a little bit out of the blue, but not entirely un- unexpected, I suppose, in the in the grand scheme of things. Nicola Willis is in as well from National Two to talk about uh, inflation and what they would do. So there is plenty going on. Thanks, Corin. A uh, morning report coming up in just over 10 minutes. Uh, right, the Ministry of Health uh, says the highly transmissible BA5 subvariant of Omicron will become the dominant strain of the virus in New Zealand in just a matter of weeks. Yesterday, there were nearly 6,500 new COVID cases, 254 of which were reinfectious. Uh, reinfections of unfortunate people who had had the virus already. Uh, Health advice now suggests reinfection can occur within just 29 days of recovering from COVID. 29 days, God. Uh, So some of us will be struck down by the virus more than once uh, in a matter of a month or two. I discussed all of this with Professor Graham Legros of the Maligan Institute. The virus has moved on. We've been vaccinated and we've been infected with previous versions of the COVID-19 virus. The one that is circulating now has changed so much that that immunity doesn't work quite so well. And when you add in the factor that the immunity that's been generated by either the previous virus infection or vaccine, it runs down over a period of six months. It seems that it's very short-lived immunity. So it means you're uniquely susceptible to getting infection, quite serious infection, from this different new variant of the COVID-19 virus going around. And we now hear about BA.5, and then there's another one overseas already, I hear about BA.2.75. So we're in for a rough ride. So we'll be looking at a situation where essentially every time there is a new variant, our immune system's playing catch-up, basically, and trying to figure out how to fight this new variant off. Exactly. I think you've, that's a lovely word to use. We're trying to play catch-up. There's a bit of catch-up. We're, we're sort of half-running. It's not as though we're completely left behind as where we were two years ago. But still, with the new variants, it's just trying to get ahead. And that's the nature of the evolutionary race of the immune system versus the virus. Now, eventually the virus will have nowhere to hide. It'll get to a dead end. It can't evolve usefully anymore without actually being the virus. And so we've got to work through that process. Obviously, we are coming into the middle of winter. Um, this is We're really in the trenches at the moment, aren't we? But is there light yes. at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, let's not get panic here. It's a tough time. We've got flu virus also circulating. It's not quite as infectious as the COVID-19 variants. But still, that, it does a pretty good job of making you feel sick as well. So it really is a time when 
we've got to be a little bit careful, use the things at our disposal, which is booster vaccination, which is the best and most important one, get your booster. The other one is avoid places where a lot of people are talking very excitedly and, and without masks and uh, stay away from intense if you're vulnerable, if you're a bit older, because it's not good for you if you get infected. What, I mean, if you are reinfected, how long should you isolate for the second time round? Because, I mean, you're hearing some stories, aren't you, of people, you know, they're sort of 10 days into uh, their infectious period and yeah. it's sort of not going anywhere. Um, how long should you, should you, should you isolate well, the second time no, round? normally most people, honestly, the virus will go in and infect you and coming out of 10 days it should be fine. Um, honestly, that's for most people. Of course, if you're immune suppressed and you can't get rid of the virus, those special people could be infected for a lot longer because the virus can hang around in them for a lot longer. But those people should know who they are. And this is why, as a, as a population, as a socially-minded group of people, we've got to be pay attention. There's people out there who are very vulnerable and feel very frightened of getting infected, and there's people who should not be getting infected, and they know who they are. They need to protect themselves. And people who perhaps can get infected, should also be very conscious. There's people around them who they work with who actually are frightened of getting infected because they won't do very well. And they want each should wear a mask to prevent both the transmission and also receiving the transmission of the virus. There's been a lot of chat about masks in schools recently, hasn't there? Uh, for, against, what's the best precaution here? Uh, I'm a bit of a pragmatic immunologist, virologist, having worked with the viruses actually in the lab. This is a tough call for kids. And uh, we all know the way children behave, or when children can be anything to find up to about 25-year-olds, I should say. Um, they're just full of hormones, trying to do different things. It's very hard for them to, to, to not slap, touch, play sport, etc., etc. So I think we've got to be a bit practical there. They're not the most vulnerable ones from the infection. Where we're seeing the major problems, it's not in these people. It's actually in the older people, as as we try and open up and do a bit more um, business activities around the country. We're seeing the infections getting into the older people who have been previously been protected by the complete lockdowns. But I think we have to work with that because we can't stay locked down forever. Can we finish off with a little bit of a public service announcement, I suppose? Uh, the professor's yeah. top tips for sort of staying well through this particularly difficult period. Fire away. Okay. Uh, okay. Honestly... If you like getting into fitness, make your immune system fit. Get a booster vaccine. And if you've already had one booster vaccine, get another one. That's amazing from stop, for stopping you getting the Omicron infections, BA5, whatever. Get your immune system fit. Get vaccinated. Second one, get some sleep. Make sure you sleep well and stay away from, from situations where you can get exposure to a, a big, large audience, whatever like that. And mask wearing, it is a useful precaution if you're vulnerable or if you think you're infected. Play it safe. And eat well and don't drink too much. I think they're very good things. Stick to that, I guarantee it, you'll be well. Hey, great advice. Professor Graham Legros there of the Melligan Institute. Uh, well, an industry expert suggests Auckland is on track for another building material shortage due to a shortage of quarries in the region. Currently, one in six truckloads of quarried materials that come into the city are brought in from other regions. But if population and infrastructure spending continue to grow, Tamaki Makoto will have to rely on the rest of the country to service most of its demand for aggregate. Well, joining us now is Chief Executive of the Aggregate and Quarry Association, Wayne Scott. Morena, Wayne. 
Morning, Nick. Look, um, this current demand, How talk to us a little bit more about how Auckland is servicing this and how, uh, I guess, sustainable that is. Yeah, at the moment, the uh, majority of the aggregate Auckland comes from the three big quarries in the region. Um, and as you've already mentioned, about 15% of it comes from mainly the Waikato. Um, and these operations are actually steps to the limits at the moment. And um, we've seen in recent decades, I think it's five quarries close um, as they're exhausted in the Auckland region, and there haven't been any new ones approved. Um, in fact, we're also finding it extremely difficult to get the existing ones extended um, for a number of reasons. So what's driving the shortage? Uh, closures, growth population? Talk us through all of that. Yeah, it's a combination of things. I mean, we have a we have extremely difficult um, resource management system in this country to get through. Um, it's currently taking for a large quarry operation. I mean, mind you, there hasn't been one for some time, but um, if we, we extrapolate what it takes for a small operation to get approved, it can take up to 10 years to get approval for an operation. Um, and that and that and that's certainly having an impact. Um, we've seen recently the implementation of the NES freshwater regulations in 2020. Um, we've had some serious unintended consequences um, around the definition of natural wetlands. Now, the government's moving to try and correct that at the moment. Um, but for two years, two of the major quarries in Auckland have been awaiting the correction of those regulations um, so they can apply for the extension. So, so it's been a combination of things. Obviously, the population growth, the, the infrastructure deficit are also impacting. Um, and I think the, the other issue we've got in this country increasingly, and it's not just Auckland, um, is, is a growing nimbyism amongst mm. the population. Um, people seem to be quite happy to be sourcing it from elsewhere rather than have the impacts on themselves. Um, and we've seen that an increasing problem with resource consent applications with the number of people objecting uh, and their grounds for objecting. It's really about we don't want any impacts. We don't care if other people have them. We just don't want them in our backyard. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, very, very briefly, uh, what's the worst case here? We've got about 20 seconds. Oh, worst case scenario is we have to bring it from overseas, but we don't want to we can go there because uh, yeah. of the issues around Port of and so forth. Absolutely. Hey, uh, thanks very much for your time this morning. That was Wayne Scott from the Aggregate and Quarry Association. Uh, right, finally this morning, some of your feedback and surprise, surprise, it is on the All Blacks coach, uh, Mr Foster. We're going to finish with Paul from North Otago who says uh, Foster should have been sacked before the All Blacks were out of the showers. That is harsh. That would have been a, a swift uh, a swift sacking, if you will. All right, that is it from us. Nathan will be back tomorrow. I'm sure he'll have some thoughts on the rugby. Is he away today because he's morning? Maybe. He, maybe he is. Well, if you are, Nathan, looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. The world will keep spinning. Hey, look, that's it from us. It's Kim and Corin next on Morning Report. Do have a wonderful day. We'll see you tomorrow.